Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 227. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we uh, delight in the fact that we have been privileged to be able to sit and study your words week after week and to pour through the material that is available to us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take preeminence and... Um, carry our hearts and thoughts to uh, the Lord Yeshua, who is to be glorified in these particular endeavors. Studying is great on its own. Honestly, it's intellectual nutrition for many people, but the goal of the and the purpose behind studying God's words is to uh, worship and honor Yeshua and to um, give him the preeminence and to to lift up his name so we we lord we we honor you and we thank you that um we can see you in the pages of the text it's because the spirit has opened our eyes and because uh god your father and our father has brought us to this place and given us uh this opportunity to to glorify you and to um share with one another so thank you for the topics thank you for the students who are participating week after week and bless you lord for um lives that are being changed as a result of the studies i cannot take the credit even though i'm the one facilitating them lord it's these are your words um and my thoughts are just trying to follow along and so um i pray that people will be blessed by the material so bless us tonight um continue to protect us and provide for us and we'll be careful lord to give you the praise and glory b'shem yeshua amen thank you everybody for joining me for these live internet studies week after week my name is ariel ben lyman hanavi and this is a um intro a uh, a topical study on the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson, the excursus. It's couched within this segment one um, eschatology, biblical study of end time events. This is for the first one hour of this hour and a half long study. If you got the time, I hope you can stick around for the entire hour and a half. On the 30 minute last segment, we'll talk about a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarian, and we're discussing biblical Unitarianism, and we're discussing the topic of uh, Psalm 110 verse 1 the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet so let's jump into the eschatology topic again we left off we're in the middle of this excursus about talking about the islamic antichrist per joel richardson he wrote the book entitled the islamic antichrist and now we're borrowing his notes from his book which is available online it's available at, at amazon as well available at his own website and it's also available at answeringislam.org all of the links are available in my description to the video so scroll down there if you'd like to um, read online and follow along let's pick up where we left off last week so we're talking about this topic of the antichrist as a spiritual world leader remember we're kind of comparing and contrasting and paralleling the three what islam calls the signs that are going to show up at the end of days that that's that's the terminology that they use they call them signs major signs or minor signs or major and minor um, most islamic uh Teachers refer to them as the major signs. And these three individuals that I'm about to name constitute these three major signs. And there are parallels to these three major signs within biblical eschatology narratives as well. And then the order that they are supposed to show up in eschatology of both religions, the first person to show up on the scene is the Antichrist in the Bible. But he has a parallel with Islam's 
Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, Mahdi or Mahdi, depending on how you, who you've listened to on the internet, how they say it. So there's a one-to-one parallel between those two. And then the second figure to show up on the scene, according to both the Bible and Islam, is this figure known as the false prophet in the biblical narrative, but it's Jesus, whose Arabic name is Esau, in the um, Islamic narrative. And so those are the two that show up on the scene. Again, honestly, we as Christians realize that that um, Islamic eschatology does not probably have probably does not have all of the details and facts straight they've got some of the players they've got some of the details right right they talk about jesus we talk about jesus but in all honesty because they are holding to a worldview that places the quran in importance above the bible and the hadith the the writings that muhammad actually wrote down uh, based on kind of i guess oral interaction with this angel um that gave him all of these uh revelations so they've got their own traditions and and a religious uh preference for their scriptures that are above the bible so we as christians don't follow that worldview and so as a result of that they've got some details that have been borrowed from the bible and to the degree that the bible speaks of certain things then we've got to kind of pay attention and and listen and see if if any of that has any relevance for us as christians all the while realizing that Satan has and does and will utilize half-truths in his effort to deceive people. So he uses the Bible quite frequently, but he mixes it in with lies in order to get people to be deceived. So it's not enough to have just a little bit of truth in what you're saying. You've got to, to the best of your ability, seek to uh, expunge error to, to cast it out and to um have um the, the 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 pure truth in front of you so yes it's going to be helpful as we study these topics uh, about islam because again satan utilizes truth to his advantage in um deceiving people because he mixes in with half lies and then he takes things and he perverts them he takes the truth and twists it or turns it on his head so that what is light becomes dark and then what is dark becomes light. And in Satan's scheme, people fall for the darkness because they are deceived into thinking it's actually light and vice versa. And Satan is pleased with that deception. So we've got to be um, prepared and we've got to be aware of a very strong probability of the way that um, these topics that we're talking about in Islam are going to be utilized in the final days in a... Um, in a uh, program in which a, a great number of people are going to be deceived. And we're not just talking about Muslims that are going to be deceived. So we've got the Antichrist as a spiritual world leader. Oops, I didn't mention the third guy. I got three guys, right? We got the uh, Antichrist and the Mahdi. We got the Islamic Jesus, Jesus Esau and the false prophet. And then the third guy in my list of three is in the Islamic model, we've got a character known as the Dajjal. He's the bad guy. He's the villain. He's the um, antagonist. And then we've got, in biblical narratives, biblical eschatology, we've got none other than Jesus Christ himself, right? The true Messiah. And of course, he's the ultimate good guy. And they do battle in the Islamic narrative. And oddly enough, in the biblical narrative, Jesus does battle against the Antichrist. So there's evil battling good. And depending on which religion you're coming from, your good guy is 
our bad guy and our bad guy is your good guy, right? I mean, that's, that's the nature of any contest, right? My guy is always good. That's just your own personal perspective. And your guy is going to be bad. That's just my perspective. But when we get on the other side of the ring, then the, um, uh, the concepts reverse, right? My good guy is, of course, my, my, my champion is my good guy. He's the good guy. And you, you guys, you're the bad guy. So it's, it's this contest of us versus them. And we have to ground ourselves as Christians in the biblical reality that Jesus truly is the good guy. We, we believe that and affirm that. And so our hearts go out to Muslims and those who are following after this lie that the Dajjal is a bad guy disguised as Jesus, that the Antichrist or that the Mahdi is really the Antichrist, and that the Muslim Jesus is actually in their respect. The Muslim Jesus is actually the false prophet. I mean, it gets really it makes your head spin if you if you try to um, work out work work all the details out to the extreme. All right, what does Joel Richardson have to add to this discussion? In my opinion, some very valuable insights. So from this point, after having done that kind of um, intro, as it were, I'll try to read down through a lot of this without stopping because it's self-explanatory and there's a lot of helpful info here. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Put your seatbelts on. The Antichrist is a spiritual world leader, right? We're going to compare and contrast the parallels against the Mahdi here in a moment. Joel says, oops, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go like that. Joel says, the Bible establishes the fact that the Antichrist will be a spiritual leader whose authority will be acknowledged worldwide. Something we've been highlighting over and over again is that even though this is going to, these kind of end-time events are going to probably... Uh, originate in the Middle East. It is no secret that the Antichrist is going to set up his headquarters in Jerusalem one day, probably sometime either shortly before establishing the seven-year peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors, or maybe even uh, right at the beginning or shortly sometime during that first half of the seventh week. We're not sure. But either way, or it might not even be until the midpoint of the week when he... <clears throat> turns on Israel and Islam, by the way, he's going to turn on the religious component of the woman, right, in Revelation chapter 17, the, the Babylonian harlot. He's going to turn on her and begin to uh, execute his own form of self-worship, self-religion, uh, self-government, right, one world uh, new world order, whatever you want to call it, one world monetary system. He's going to turn on everyone and just to go wild persecuting everyone. In fact, it'll be so intense that according to Jesus' own words, if those, those days of, of tribulation weren't cut short, no flesh would be uh, would live. No flesh would survive. So let's keep reading Joel. After examining the Antichrist's role as a universal religious leader, many Bible prophecy teachers have talked about the coming of the, quote, one world religion or the, quote, false church, end quote, which the Antichrist will both create and enforce upon the entire earth. So we're looking at this subject of the Antichrist, this topic of the Antichrist, through the lens of what I'm calling, or what Joel calls, the Islamic model. I'm using the phrase Islamic model. Joel just simply calls it Islamic Antichrist, or Muslim Antichrist. But this is in somewhat comparison, and sometimes contrast, to what I'm calling the European model of the Antichrist. And that's the popular model that's found in many Christian circles before you ever heard of the Islamic model. The European model is where we have an Antichrist who's rising up out of perhaps a revived Roman Empire that's 
um, largely based uh, in the European Union uh, part of the world, like you'll, from the from the Middle East perspective, it's farther west, obviously. We're talking Europe and England and things like that. And the European version of the Antichrist is perhaps maybe even someone who's not of Jewish ancestry or of uh, Arabic ancestry or um, something to that effect. He's not a he's not a devout Muslim or anything of that effect. He's not a Mahdi. He's not a he's not the twelfth Imam like Islam talks about. Instead, he's some um, Westerner, as it were, and he still plays the roles that we're familiar with. Right? He brings in a, new, a world, a one world order, one world government. Um, you know, he still uh, brokers peace with Israel and her neighbors. He still turns on Israel in the middle point of the week. He still tries sets up to implement, implement the mark of the beast and the beast and the image and and he still seeks to persecute Christians and Jews. And so all of his his heinous crimes are the same no matter which model you're using. But the, the, the stark difference between the two models is where is this um, leader rooted in? What are his ancestral roots? What what religion is he probably going to rise up out of? And uh, what are going to be perhaps maybe his end goals uh, using which whatever religion? So if he rises out of a European model, perhaps maybe he's going to utilize some form of ecumenical version of Christianity or Catholicism or some blend of all the religions together. I don't know what he would call that. Um, you know, oneness religion or one world religion or or you know i don't know beast beast religion or something you know um but the comparison when we're looking at the islamic model is they firmly believe that their mahdi which is the biblical version of antichrist their mahdi is going to establish islam as the one world religion so in their model of who the antichrist figure is or who the main one world leader at the end is their version understands that islam needs to be the established one world religion and therefore it will be a, a leader who rises up out of their ranks out of their background and he's going to be someone that they welcome with open arms so understanding how those two are kind of uh, playing off of one another in, in terms of our discussion here joel continues this concept of a coming dominant and demonically inspired world religion is partly arrived at due to the frequent references to worship that are associated with the antichrist throughout scripture and for this reason when we're talking about the religious component of who the antichrist is it's not unusual to have many christians down through the ages suppose that perhaps maybe the pope is the antichrist because he is one of the chief religious figures uh, from from days gone by as well as today and that makes sense to that they would see that right you have to remember that when we, when we ask the question in common christian circles who is the antichrist some people depending on whatever background perspective that they are kind of inclined to uh study and catch their interest like if they have a background in politics and they're interested in what's going on in government and things like that their version of answer to who the antichrist is will often pull in presidential names right uh, clinton or trump or obama or some past president something like that or maybe some figure over in europe right churchill or 
what was his name, uh, Boris Johnson or something like that, right? So they start bringing up, or I don't know, female figures, right? It could could be the queen that's resurrected or it could be, you know, Margaret Thatcher or, you know, depending on what country you come from or what religious leader you have a beef with that you, that you have qualms with, he's going to be your Antichrist figure. But if you come from religious circles, right, like others do, like myself, I'm not a very politically oriented person. I'm not very politically minded. I'm not really that interested in politics at all, right? Um... So when I think about who Antichrist might be, the, the, thing, the figures that popped in my head are, yes, political, but they have a, also a heavy religious uh, influence. So I started thinking of religious figures, too. I'm thinking, like, could the Pope be the Antichrist? I'm just talking in general. So that's why the Pope comes to mind when we talk about Antichrist uh, possibilities. Of course, in the Islamic model, they also have their uh, candidates on who the Antichrist, or I'm sorry, who this one world leader will be. They don't call him Antichrist. Remember, Mahdi is their title. The guided one is the kind of the literal translation of this Arabic word Mahdi or Mahdi, the one who guides, the guided one, the one who's going to bring and usher in worldwide Islam as a religion, which of course from their perspective is the true religion, the true and only religion. All other religions are false. And so obviously there is an, a religious component to their one world leader because he's ushering in the religion of Islam uh, uh, in that, in that uh, scenario. Let's let uh, Joel continue. Joel says, in the book of Revelation, we read that the Antichrist will both inspire and demand worship. This worship, he says, will be directed at both Satan, who's referred to as, quote, the dragon, end quote, and the Antichrist, who's referred to as, quote, the beast, end quote. Remember, when we're reading through the biblical narrative, we know that there's what we might call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet also in the satanic realm, in the realm of darkness, we also have what we might call a satanic trinity. We have the devil himself, and then we have the Antichrist, and then we have the false prophet. All three figures show up in the book of Revelation, and all three figures are prominent, and all three figures are also have parallels in uh, somewhat in Islamic um, uh, narratives. So, when we're talking about worship being directed to the Antichrist, uh, the Bible talks about how that the people will give their allegiance to the beast, which is the Antichrist, that's one of his nicknames, the beast, or the system of the beast, i.e. his religion, his politics, his government, his, his, his cabinet, etc., etc., his ten, ten nation coalition, that's also referred to as the beast, so you have to catch the context. But generically speaking, the Antichrist is called the beast in more than one place in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, right? Daniel used the phrase beast as well. And when people are going to find themselves worshiping the beast, in reality, the danger is not just that they're owing their allegiance to a man or that they're giving their allegiance to a human, right? A satanically inspired human who's quite, uh, he might quite literally be the devil incarnate. I don't think that the devil can actually incarnate himself like God can incarnate as Jesus. But for all intents and purposes, the devil will pour all of his energies into this 
evil human being when the time comes. So people will be worshiping the man, Antichrist, but, but in reality, the Bible says that it's ultimately Satan who is receiving the worship because Satan is giving his power and the authority to the Antichrist. And that's important. It's an important aspect for us to realize because people sometimes say, well, what's the big deal about worshiping a man? My heart still belongs to God. My heart still belongs to Jesus or something. I can, I can pay lip service and homage to a man, but we need to be very, very careful with this concept of worship and homage and things like that, especially as we're approaching the last days. Also, I wanted to add that we're going to quote, see this quote here from Revelation in a second. I also want to add that <clears throat> when we talk about the religious component of the beast system, there's a lot, there, there's of course a heavy political and military aspect to it, right? The Antichrist is going to be able to rule the world because he has a, a unmatched military force behind him. He's going to have the strongest military might. He's going to have access to the world's wealth at the top level. And therefore, he's going to utilize his military might and his political clout to move uh, mountains for him. Right. There will be he'll have uh, he'll be unchallenged when that day comes. But it's important to remember that the false prophet provides that spiritual component for the Antichrist as well, so that he can almost be in two places at once. He can be on one side of the world um, campaigning for his political regimes and his, his political agendas and his military uh, budgets and things like that. He can be on one side of the world and the, his false prophet can be on the other side of the world holding a revival a spiritual revival for, for the masses who are going to be duped and following after the lie and being deceived because God gave them over to a strong delusion to believe the lie because they refused to believe the truth. So because of his his, his partner, the, the false prophet, <clears throat> there will be um, a way for the Antichrist to um, have a lot of wheels spinning at the same time and we need to we need to consider that fact and so in that sense maybe the pope could factor in as like the false prophet since he's a more religious figure than he is a, a political figure although we know that catholic popes have had their hand in politics in the past who knows if that might be the case in the future let's read this quote from the book of revelation as quoted by joel richardson here quote men worshiped the dragon right which is satan because he had given authority to the beast that's the antichrist and they also worshiped the beast and asked and this again this worship could either be the man that they're worshiping or it could be the system that he's establishing his his one world government and they asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Of course, in that sentence, that question, who can make war against him, it obviously incorporates the idea that it's not just a man that can't be challenged. It's a man plus his military and political uh, might behind him. And that's why he, he remains in this place where he's seemingly undefeatable, right? Invincible. It's because he has, he's going to at some point in time control uh, enough of a military might and enough of, enough political power to hold sway in a majority of world arenas. That's why he's seen by the, the what we call the earth dwellers, the people who live on the earth who have rejected God and his Messiah Jesus and the truth of the Bible. I'm calling them the earth dwellers. He's they they're going to be marveling at this beast and his system. You know, who can who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? Obviously, he must have enough political power and military might and enough money, resources, and uh, um, you know, he's got what we might call um, 
connections in all the right places. Let's keep reading Joel's quote from the book of Revelation. All inhabitants of the earth, those are the earth dwellers, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Now, it doesn't mean Christians here. It simply means a generic kind of a, this is kind of a technical phrase. The inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, is referenced by in the book of Revelation at this time to those who have rejected God, his Messiah, and the truth of the Bible so as to believe the lie and they're under the under the strong de um, deception that god is pouring out on those who are reprobate at this point in time the rebels so these are technical terms it's kind of like when you read the word sinner in the bible well everybody on earth is a sinner but when the bible says well all sinners will find their place in the lake of fire it doesn't mean everybody it just means those who are unrepentant sinners those who have not confessed jesus as lord and had their sins forgiven same things going on with all inhabitants of the earth or uh the dweller those who dwell on the earth in other versions of your bible i call them the earth dwellers kind of my nickname so all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast meaning only those who are reprobate, those who have their eyes blinded to the truth, those who are rejecting God at this point in time. All whose, and it's clear, here, here's my proof, it's qualified in the very next clause. All whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Of course, that's Yeshua. So, um, all inhabitants of the earth doesn't mean every human being. Obviously, it just means those who are not Christian those who are not genuine children of the true and living God. So our quote was from Revelation 13, 4 and 8. There is a lot of information there in the book of Revelation chapter 13 that once the time comes, we're going to have a lot of a lot of work to do uh, working through that particular chapter. So kind of bookmark that chapter in your mind. Let's keep reading our uh, commentary here from Joel Richardson. Beyond the fact that the Antichrist establishes a worldwide worship movement, another reason to see him as a spiritual world leader is because the Bible says he will be assisted by a man whom it refers to as, quote, the false prophet, end quote, right? We talked about th this individual a moment ago. In the Bible, he's the false prophet. In Islamic eschatology, they're parallel uh, person, man, figure, is the Islamic Jesus, Isa. He is what we Bible readers would recognize as the parallel to the false prophet here. Although, again, they've got their version of Jesus, we've got our version of Jesus, but they don't parallel one another when we compare these two eschatological narratives. And so that's why, and I mentioned this earlier and I won't prolong the point, if you're having a dialogue with a devout Muslim or someone who is even familiar with Islamic eschatology and you start talking, you bring up the topic of Jesus, right? You're a Christian and you have maybe an evangelistic outreach prospect or the concept, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to witness to this Muslim because you, you realize that Islam is a false religion in that regard, right? It's not the true religion. It, they, you know, Muslims are lost just like any other under other unsaved individuals. They just happen to be religious. So you're witnessing to this guy and you decide to open up your Bible and start talking about Jesus. And then you get, you're surprised halfway through the conversation, he starts saying, oh yeah, Jesus, we love him. We can't wait till he returns. We're looking for his return as well. And you're you're thinking you're scratching your head. You're going. You mean to you, Jesus is a good guy. He's a he's a champion. He's he's someone that's that's revered. And they're saying yes. 
yeah, we agree. Jesus is a good guy. He's a prophet. He's a good man. We are looking forward to his return from heaven, right? He's sitting right now at, at Allah's right hand and waiting to be sent by Allah back to earth to finish his job, to 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 do good, to to you know, to bring the truth to humans. And you're thinking, is this guy a Christian? Okay, ah, this is where you need to be careful. Their version of Jesus is not the same as the biblical version of Jesus. Their version of Jesus has been stripped of all of his divinity, his uh, resurrection. He's been stripped of his um, atoning power on the cross, etc., etc. He's just been reduced to a good man, a good prophet, someone that was carried bodily alive into heaven by his father Allah, and now he waits for Allah to send him back to earth. You ready for this? To usher in worldwide Islamic religion. In their version, Jesus is a devout Muslim. That's right. And he's going to usher in worldwide Islam as the one world religion. So you got to be careful. All right, let's keep reading Joel. Joel um, I almost I almost want to keep saying Joel Osteen, but I don't mean that Joel. I mean Joel Richardson. All right, little uh, Freudian slip going on there. All right, so Joel Richardson says, of course, the very title false prophet, right, the biblical uh, figure, assumes the religious nature of this man. He goes on to say that one of the primary roles of the false prophet, remember, he's the right-hand man to the Antichrist, right? Dynamic duo analogy that I use sometime back, Batman and Robin. Batman being the leader of the dynamic duo of the two. Batman is the Mahdi, a.k.a. the Antichrist, according to us Christians. And the Islamic Jesus Esau, a.k.a. the false prophet to we Christians, he's the Robin figure. And it's important to know that Batman has the higher status in rank, right? He's the leader in Batman uh, in the Batman-Robin duo, in the dynamic duo. Batman is the leader and Robin is the junior. He's the subordinate. So in Islamic circles, the Mahdi outranks the Islamic Jesus Esau. And to pause and let that sink in. Their 12th Imam, their Mahdi, their religious leader, their supreme religious leader that they're expecting to return to, or yeah, to, to come to planet Earth someday in the end days, he outranks their Jesus. So he's above their Jesus. The Jesus is lower in rank and subordinate to their Mahdi. So again, there's a, that's another difference between the biblical Jesus and the Islamic Jesus. So Joel Richardson's talking about this false prophet, and he talks about that one of the primary roles of the false prophet is to specifically perform deceptive signs and wonders that will help persuade the inhabitants of the earth, right, those real earth dwellers again, to worship the Antichrist slash beast. So there's the challenge that's going to be presented in the last days is there will be signs and wonders, but the Bible says, even Paul brings this in, there in the Thessalonian chapters, there are going to be lying signs and wonders, meaning they will be supernatural because apparently angelic beings, both good and bad, right, demons and angels, they can perform signs and wonders, and the devil has the ability to perform signs and wonders. However, they are lying or they are deceptive in that the sign and wonder in and of itself is not an indicator of truth. So remember, the, the antecedent theology behind what I'm talking about goes all the way back to the book of Exodus where Moses is confronting the Pharaoh about letting God's people go, right? The, the people of Israel are prisoners 
slaves to the Pharaoh and his system. And Moses has been sent by God to challenge the Pharaoh face to face. And what happens? God tells Moses, when you stand before the Pharaoh, I'm going to give you signs and wonders. You're going to throw your staff down. It's going to turn into a snake, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to have these signs and wonders that you're going to demonstrate before the Pharaoh to demonstrate your authenticity before him. But when, when Moses went and stood before the Pharaoh and performing signs and wonders, what happened? Pharaoh's own magicians performed their own signs and wonders. How is that possible? Because the dark arts and, and the cult, and the occult, I should say, and Satan himself has a measured amount of of supernatural power to be able to perform signs of wonders. And in the last days, people who are not genuine believers and do not have the discernment of the Holy Spirit living inside them, they will look at the sign and the wonder that's being performed by people like the false prophet and other demonically inspired individuals that will be running around during this day, let alone, um, not to mention the actual demons who will have been cast down to planet Earth at this point in time, right midpoint of the week. The, the earth dwellers are going to be seeing all these signs and wonders, and they're just going to be convinced. They're going to be swayed. They're going to be fooled. So let's read our another quote from the book of Revelation. Quote, but the beast was captured, right? The Antichrist. And with him, the false prophet who did what? Who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf, right? Revelation 19.20. So the false prophet will have all these signs and wonders. Will there be a limit to what he can do? Well, there should be. There are certain signature signs and wonders that apparently only God seems to be able to do, like perform resurrection. But perhaps Satan can mimic that and imitate that, right? Cause a person to look like they die, and then as a result, have this kind of prolonged uh, unconsciousness, and then perhaps have a fake, a falsified resurrection. It's an imitation resurrection. I think even Antichrist himself will experience something like that, or it might be his system that's brought back to life when we talk about this resurrected leader, right? A person who who who, who um, comes back to life from a a, a, a fatal wound. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in time. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. He says, it's clear then the Bible teaches that the Antichrist will be the leader of a worldwide religious worship movement that will attempt to displace and usurp worship from the God of the Bible. And since we're talking about this topic of the Islamic religion playing a prominent place in the end times, there's a strong possibility, and at least in Islamic discussions, the very reality that they're expecting and pushing this agenda, that Islam will be that final world religion that takes over all the other religions, including Christianity, and establishes itself as the chief religion in the world. Indeed, as I mentioned in the past, and you can just Google search this yourself, Islam is trending in, the ter in terms of growing and increasing. It's trending in the direction of overtaking all the other religions already. Right, it's growing more rapidly than Christianity. Last time I checked, and in the space of a sh in the short space of I believe last time I remember looking around like 20 years, something like that, maybe even sooner, then Islam will displace uh, Christianity as the top religion. So that should cause some alarm for even your average Christian who has really no interest in Islam or an Islamic Antichrist or the topic that we're talking about right now. The the false prophet is going to make sure that religion plays a very key role in the Antichrist's uh, final eighth beast empire and his regime. Religion will be a key component to that, so much so that 
even the people who are non-religious in the world will have some form of participation in the religious component uh even politics even po uh, the political system the governments of the world according to revelation chapter 17 will somehow participate in the religious component i don't exactly know how that's going to factor in but uh perhaps again we've got precedent for that in the past where the catholic popes and the catholic church had a heavy hand in politics and in setting kings on the throne and establishing uh certain you know governmental figures in place in certain countries in the past they don't maybe have so much now more uh these days but they have in the past and so there is a precedent for that um in uh world religion and world government so let's keep reading joel richardson he says this worship will then be directed toward both himself right and to satan so we're looking at the antichrist utilizing the false prophet to redirect all that worship back to the antichrist which is ultimately to satan the invisible spirit lowercase s the provocateur and puppet master that motivates empowers and gives authority to the antichrist to accomplish his war worldwide task and i have to keep reminding people who are watching my video listening to the podcast mp3 and going following along with this discussion it's not gonna be enough when that day comes for you to just take a non-religious stance and kind of say well you know i don't believe in god i don't believe in jesus but i don't believe in islam either i don't uh, subscribe to antichrist and any false prophet or any other nonsense i'm just a non-religious person i'm a that's my religion is non-religion right we've got a good number of people in the world who claim their religion is non-religion right i'm non-religious i'm atheist i'm agnostic whatever i just want to live my life don't bother me i won't bother you don't make don't put your religion in my face you know don't come to my door with your bible knocking on your on my door asking me to come to your church etc etc i don't need any of that i don't need religion it's not going to be enough for that to be your protection in the last days why because of two main factors that i keep mentioning the bible mentions these as well both of them are actually found in paul's letters to the thessalonians one of the key components that's going to stop you from just simply resisting the antichrist right remember in last week i threw up this little picture of um john luke uh, picard uh, the captain of the enterprise as um locutus the borg and the the meme said resistance is futile right in that day resistance will be futile for the world dwellers for the earth dwellers why for two these two main reasons one because you were already reprobate by rejecting god his messiah and his truth of the word of god the holy spirit uh, um inspired word of god because you are already in that position your heart is cold god himself will send a strong delusion you think you're going to be able to fight against god yes again all right so that's the chief reason why you're not going to make it by just choosing default no religion in that day but the second reason is because satan himself will be down here on earth after he's cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the week michael and his angels fight against the devil revelation chapter 12 and they cast satan and his angels or demons down to earth and satan has his great wrath and god has given satan this space of three and a half years 42 months 1260 days to have his way among humans and therefore with all the demonic activity and satan himself running rampant here on planet earth that's the second side of the component that that's going to make it impossible for the earth dwellers to simply take what we might consider the kind of a non-religious stance the false prophet is going to be enforcing worldwide false religion and beast worship and uh, idol worship and 
take the mark of the beast, etc., etc. So how are you going to get away with that? Why? Because he says you're not going to be able to even buy or sell or eat or drink if you don't take the mark or worship the beast or worship the take the number of his name. So you're going to be in a real pickle trying to fight against God, the two, what I call the two most powerful forces in the universe. You're going to try and fight against God and Satan by claiming no religion. Yeah, good luck with that. All right. Let's keep reading down through this topic and pick up now the parallel from the Islamic side of the house, the Mahdi as a spiritual world leader. All right, here's what Joel Richardson has to say. Likewise, it almost goes without saying the Mahdi of Islam will also be the leader of a worldwide worship remove a worldwide worship movement. So as we begin to now look at the parallel between uh, Islam's three figures and the Bible's three figures. We're now looking at Islam's side of the what what is the parallel to the biblical false prophet. Remember, um, as I look at this title head and the Mahdi as a spiritual world leader, uh, we're still having this discussion about the Mahdi, who in the biblical model is the Antichrist. But the if you ask a Muslim, who is the Antichrist? They're not going to say, "Oh, he's the he's the Mahdi." He's the 12th Imam. That's not what they're going to say. Because the term Antichrist is already a kind of a, of a pejorative title. It's a negative term. Antichrist. Remember, their Christ, or their good guy, is the Mahdi. He's their Messiah figure. The Jesus figure that they, the Jesus, the historical Jesus that they recognize is simply a subordinate. He's a junior. He's Robin, right? He's, he's, he's a boy. He's not very powerful. He's just a human. But the Mahdi is a predominant figure. So from their perspective, when you ask him, who's the Antichrist, they're going to say, oh, that's the Dajjal. He's the bad guy. He's the villain. And you're thinking, who's the biblical Dajjal? We don't have a guy, right? So, that, that, that well, I mean, from the Islamic perspective, the true biblical Jesus is the bad guy. He's the villain because he's the one that's promoting and fostering false religion, i.e. Christianity and Judaism, which are false religions in the view of Islam, etc., etc. Okay, so, Joel Richardson is now talking about the worldwide influence of this Mahdi, and we read, it will, speaking about his movement, it will be a worship movement that will seek to cause anyone who practices any religion other than Islam to renounce their faith and worship Allah, the God of Islam. And there's where the cause for concern should be for most of us as Christians. I know the European model of Antichrist believes that somehow Christianity is going to eventually overthrow and defeat other world religions and become the dominant religion of some sort, somehow through either a Psalm 83 war or an Ezekiel a Gog and Magog war or something to that effect. I've heard other Bible teachers try to talk about where Islam is going to factor in, even when they don't hold to an Islamic Antichrist model like Joel Richardson and like I myself am really heavily leaning towards other Bible teachers as well. John MacArthur, Tim Haig, uh, Zion's Hope, right? Um, the um, uh, Marv Rosenthal and his um, ministry there. Other groups that other Christian uh, outfits that are leaning towards more of a, an Islamic Antichrist model, the Christianity group that doesn't that lean towards in that direction that believes that Islam uh, that uh, uh, Antichrist is more of a, a European type figure, they still have to ask themselves how and where does Islam factor in to our equation? What's what is there going to be? What's going to be their role at the table? And so it becomes kind of how should I say? difficult for them to 
just look the other way and put their head in the sand and ignore Islam because of the very strong probability, according to Islam, they're moving towards a one world religion that's governed by Islam. That's that's their goal. That's one of their goals is to bring Islam to the world religious spot. Even Judaism isn't isn't vying for that, at least not openly. I don't hear rabbis knocking on doors saying, hey, can you can you convert to Judaism because it's going to be the one world religion one day. Christianity believes that Christ will rule the world one day from his headquarters in Jerusalem, right, when he sets up his, his um, government in the millennium. And thus, we do believe that Christianity will rule the world one day, yes. But until Jesus does that, which is near the end of the 70th week, what do we do with Islam? Right? Which means we might have seven years of, of according to Islam, even the seven-year part is in, is part of their eschatology. They believe that Islam is going to uh, establish world rule, at least for seven years. So, this subject is highly um, charged, and I think it's important for those of you who don't hold to an Islamic model, an Islamic Antichrist model. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. We've got a lot of time left in my study, about 20 minutes left, so let's make some progress. Joel says, as we saw in the last chapter, chapter 4 of his book, the Mahdi will, quote, govern the people by the Sunnah of their prophet and establish Islam on earth. And I don't know if that's a quote, the, the footnote too, I don't know if that's a quote from the Quran itself, or if it's a quote from the Hadith, or if it's just a quote from some um, Islamic specialist. But it all amounts to the same thing. Uh, there's another quote. I think that if I remember... <clears throat> Without going into these quotes, these footnotes, I believe these are quotes from um, Islamic specialists, Islamic teachers. Another quote says, and quote, Islam will be victorious over all the religions. So we also have to remember that, and this is very important for us as Christians, in the Christian model, Jesus conquers the other religions because he is the word of God and he conquers the Antichrist by the word of by the the sword that that proceeds from his mouth and he defeats the antichrist and the false prophet the beast he throws him alive into the lake of fire and he establishes his his own millennial kingdom here on earth because he is god incarnate he is god's messiah he's going to be establishing truth but notice Christianity as the body of Messiah does not establish Christianity for our lord by conquest we don't do it by the sword. We're not putting people to the sword and forcing them to become Christians. At least we shouldn't be doing that. Now I know there is a history in Christianity, an ugly history of the Crusaders and the Inquisitions. And there was a time when Christianity was forcing Christian religion down people's throats and converting people by the sword. But this is not the way of the Bible. This is not the way of our Lord Yeshua. This is not what he taught us. This was simply the agenda of Christians or people who called themselves Christians in the past. Whether they were true Christians or not, I can't say that God is their judge. But the actions that they were undertaking, the forced conversions to Christianity, etc., that's not the biblical way to do things. By comparison, however, when we read or when we familiarize ourselves with Islamic uh, theology, we realize that uh, Islam as a world religion has a history of forced conversions at the sword. In other words, it's the, again, it's the kind of the Borg mentality. Uh, resistance is futile, meaning you either convert or you die. You either join us or you die. 
there's no room for you to practice your religion and us to practice our religion and the two of us to kind of coexist. You've seen those bumpers, bumper stickers? I'll flash that on the screen and post. Coexist, where all the religions coexist. According to the Islamic models that we're reading here, no, there shouldn't be coexistence. Islam needs to overtake all the other religions and be the final religion in that, in that aspect. And so let's keep reading. Joel, oops. Joel Richardson uh, continues uh, giving us these insights. Thus, we see that the Mahdi is the leader of a world revolution that will institute a, quote, new world order, end quote, that will be based on the religion of Islam. Thus, does Islam, in the Islamic model, the Mahdi is a political figure. Yes. He has military might behind him. Yes. But one of his chief titles is 12th imam and in islam imam is a religious figure almost like rabbinic or like judaism's rabbis or like christianity's popes or uh clerics or preachers pastors um you know these types of religious figures that we have in christianity let's keep reading joel richardson islam will be the only religion that will be allowed to be practiced we've got to contend with this possible and probable fact otherwise islam is not going to stop attempting they're gonna they're not going to stop trying it's it's highly unlikely you ready for this? It is highly unlikely that Islam will simply lay down their arms, surrender their position as a dominant religion, and say, we've decided to just accept Christianity as a sister religion, sister Abrahamic religion, along with Judaism, and um, we're going to live peacefully with one another. Now, I think your kind of your lower level Muslims would probably agree to that aspect. But the higher up you get into this scheme of eschatology in Islamic circles, uh, the more and more it's going to be, nope, there's only going to be one true religion. We're not going to allow the other religions. So it's highly unlikely that um, devout Muslims would ever say, let's convert to Christianity or allow um, Christianity to coexist with us um, and share our resources. Even now in Israel, in Israel, in the, on the Temple Mount, and this bears relevance to our discussion. So it's not a not a rabbit trail that I'm chasing here. It's not a, a side rabbi. Um, even now in the uh, in Israel on the Temple Mount, the the holiest structure on top of that Temple Mount is not a Jewish structure like it used to be in the past. Right, Solomon's Temple used to be up there, and Herod's temple used to be up there. And so now what's up there? An Islamic shrine, right? Two of them, actually, I think. The Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Both of those are up on the Temple Mount right now. Ask them if they will kindly share that Temple Mount area with Judaism, allow Judaism to build a temple. Nope, ain't going to happen. Ask them if they'll allow a church, a good, good, good old-fashioned Baptist church, to be built up there. Nope, ain't going to happen. How about a Catholic cathedral? Can we build that on top there? Nope. What's my point? The point is even now. Now, at this stage, the control of the Temple Mount is being dominated and is locked up by Arabic-slash-Muslim-controlled uh, powers. They're, they're not letting any other religions up there. I mean, if you're a Jewish person or an Israeli living in Israel today and you try and go up there and do any religious type of activity, right, you're, you're going to run into trouble. You're, you're, you're just begging to start World War III. So, how much more will it be in that day when, remember... 
all of this is going to be controlled by Satan. God is watching and God is ultimately controlled. So don't lose, don't lose sight of that. But to the degree that God will be allowing Satan to have this final rebellious move among mankind so that it comes to a head so that Jesus can finally put all of those enemies and then ultimately death one day, but put those religious enemies under his feet. Remember, Satan is going to put himself in the temple. He's going to uh, establish himself in the temple, take his seat, using Paul's words, in the temple and declare himself to be God. Do you think he's going to be allowing other religious um, worship and devotion to other gods and other religious figures at that point in time? No. By the midpoint of the week, he is going to demand worldwide worship of himself. And that that is a scary parallel to what um, we're reading here about the Mahdi and uh, what he's going to try to be uh, uh, setting up with his um, his cabinet there. Let's keep reading. Both the Antichrist and the Mahdi are said to be the unqualified leaders of a global religious movement that will draw worship away from the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the component that should be um, alarming to us as Christians as we see the rise of not just the one world government by the Antichrist, but the rise of Islam alongside of that, and the very, again, real probability that Islam's Mahdi is going to be the one that Satan utilizes in Satan's last one world government. Here's the here's here's where you need to catch the difference, and I'll shut up after this and just keep reading for the last 10 minutes of our show. Is there going to be a one world government? Absolutely. Is there going to be a one-world Islamic religion? Possibly. Possibly. So the difference between those two statements that I just made is the Bible prophesies that there definitely will be a final one-world religious uh, system established in place along with a one-world political movement, one-world kind of uh, controlled military, one-world monetary system, one-world banking system, right, controlled by uh, a mark that is implemented in the hand and the forehead or both, or uh, the number of the name that's you know put on you or something like that, uh, worldwide mandated worship of the image or images the greek can go either way it's one giant image that's established somewhere in the world that has cameras on it that are streamed 24 7 around the world you know all the time or multiple miniature images that you can buy that are demonically um infused right they have demon powers in them they're they're indwelt by demons and they're mandated to be purchased by every person in the world and that way you have um demonic worship that way satanic worship one way or another the bible describes these activities with certainty and it will happen it's not a probability it's not a plausibility it's absolute certainty the islamic component that we're describing in these studies is simply a possibility slash plausibility that is added to the very um disturbing um reality of what will take place so don't think to yourself well this guy ariel this bible teacher this torah teacher he's talking about this islamic model antichrist you know i don't believe in that i don't i don't subscribe to that i don't think that's a possibility that might not happen right since when has islam ever been right well you know this mati that they're supposedly going to rise and the muslim jesus and all that oh that's a fabrication the islam's not right right their religion's false i why should i even care about all of that that's not going to happen right um i'm not i don't have to be worried about that well you're misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. 
I'm not saying that Islam is definitely going to rise to power and be the one world government. I'm not saying that the Mahdi is definitely going to come into power. I'm not saying that the Dajjal is definitely going to hit the scene, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying those things. What I'm saying is that's a strong possibility slash probability. What I am saying, however, is that the one world government ruled by Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, that will happen. Right? Okay. That's Why is it going to happen? Not because RL says it's going to happen. It's going to happen because the Bible says it's going to happen, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John at, and on the Isle of Patmos, he recorded those words. They are scripture. It will happen. Let's keep reading, Joel. This is last, last 10 minutes, I'll try and read somewhat interrupted. And we'll finish out our study this way. Uh, Joel says, we're not going to finish Joel's notes. I'm just going to try and stop interrupting you guys, okay? Joel says, as we see clearly, as we will see clearly in later chapters of his book, inherent in the worship of Allah within the context of Islam is a direct denial of the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. And we just read that uh, a, a similar uh, sentence that a moment ago. Joel says, in fact... This is the reason that some Muslims feel so strongly as to say that the Mahdi will, quote, eradicate those pigs and dogs, i.e. the Christians and the Jews, they're the pigs and the dogs, who refuse to convert to Islam. Kind of scary, huh? Yeah. Which leads us, Joel says, to the next obvious similarity between the Antichrist and the Mahdi. Are you ready? Here we go. This next uh, paragraph is entitled... Here we go. The Antichrist's targeted campaign against Jews and Christians, who the um, the the uh, the previous Islamic specialist called the pigs and the dogs. All right, this ought to be a somewhat disturbing uh, uh, paragraph in Joel's book for Jews and Christians for obvious reasons. And for actually, I might add, as I interject, I said I wouldn't wouldn't um, interrupt, but let me interject the part uh, again. As far as I can tell, what we might call your garden variety. Um, Muslim today, your average Muslim, no matter which country he resides in, your garden variety Muslim has a, a an amicable relationship with Jews and Christians, right? They're likely his neighbors, he they're his coworkers, right? They're the people that he that he buys his groceries from. He doesn't have any qualm with them. He doesn't have any beef with them. He's he's not trying to to um, implement jihad and 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 get rid of the the pigs and the dogs. But we're talking about an Islamic. Uh, eschatology that factors in very high-level religious and political figures, Mahdi, uh, 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 Islamic Esau, uh, you know, Dajjal, these type of figures, that at that level, when you start going high up into Islamic uh, eschatology, and in order for you to bring in a one-world Islamic religion, you have to get rid of the scum. You have to get rid of the um, the opposition. You have to eliminate those who are going to oppose your uh, political and religious agenda. Right? It's not enough to have some kind of a bipartisan, to use political terminology. It's not enough to have um, some agreement with your opponents. You've got to like. Um, like the Palestinians speak of Israel, you've got to push them into the Mediterranean Sea. You've got to expunge the land of them. So, let's keep reading Joel and look at this. The Bible is very clear that Satan, through the Antichrist, will specifically target first Jews, Revelation chapter 12, and then Christians for death. In the book of Revelation chapter 12, like I just mentioned, and 13, we read another prophetic passage of scripture 
that is rich with symbolic language. A lot of the book of Revelation is symbolic, but thankfully, most of the book of Revelation actually self-interprets itself. It talks in what seems to be riddles and um, uh, what we might call um, uh, spiritualities or, or uh, you know, characteristic language or apocalyptic language or, or something to that effect, but usually it defines itself, symbolic language, etc., etc., Joel says, initially, speaking of these chapters, it's slightly difficult to understand, but after the symbols are explained, it becomes very clear. So he said the same thing that I just mentioned. So let's read this quote from the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 12, right here on the screen. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. All right, so Joel's going to um, provide an interpretation that's fairly well received across Christian circles, so I don't have to um, make any big uh, differentiation here about with, with what he's going to say. The woman, symbolically pictured here, this is Joel's interpretation, is the family or nation of Israel, the Jewish people. We see, he says, that she is crowned with 12 stars. This represents the 12 sons of Israel who became the 12 tribes that make up the family or the nation of Israel per Genesis 35, uh, 23 through 26. And now we have a... Um, Another quote from the book of Revelation. Keep continuing. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. We're going to find that phrase again referring to the, the Antichrist. Slightly reworded, but it's basically the same description, which tells us the association between Satan and the Antichrist in the last days. John continues in the book of Revelation, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And then John continues, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Revelation 12, 2 through 5. And of course, we're talking about uh, Israel and Yeshua, right, the Christ, the Messiah. Let's read Joel's um, interpretation. And then we're drawing our study to a close. I'll keep reading as much as I can for the last two or three minutes. Joel says, he interprets, the woman Israel becomes pregnant and gives birth to a man-child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is a clear reference, of course, to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And we can reference Psalm 2, verse 9. The dragon mentioned here is identified in verse 9 as, quote, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world keep reading, astray, end quote. So we have to, we don't have to guess. Again, many of the symbols are self-interpreted in the book of Revelation if you just let it speak for itself. Joel continues, we see that Satan desires to kill Jesus, but instead, Jesus is, quote, snatched up to God and to his throne, end quote. And then that also um, reminds us of the fact that 
Jesus is going to be given the throne of dominion, and that goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of Daniel. This is a reference to Jesus' ascension to heaven, Joel reminds us, after the resurrection that we read about in Acts 1.8. After this, then we have another quote uh, from the book of Revelation. He's finishing out chapter 12 here, essentially reading all of Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then he jumps forward a little bit in the uh, narrative from the Bible. He, the dragon, pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, scrolling down here, though, uh, given those two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taking care of her how long? For a time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years, by the way, 12 months, I'm sorry, 42 months, 12, 12, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, so time, times, and half a time. Out, uh, she's, So she's hidden out of the serpent's reach. Then, John in the book of Revelation says, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. And then the definition of who those are is those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's our quote from Revelation chapter 12, um, verses 1, 6, 9, 13, 14, and 17. Essentially, we read the entire uh, chapter of Revelation chapter 12. So, what we're learning as we uh, conclude tonight is that there are these parallels. This is what we kind of we kind of a, um, a summary of what we learned today tonight's study. There are these parallels between the Antichrist himself in the Bible and the Mahdi of Islamic eschatology, and the important parallels are drawn so that we as Christians can be better prepared for the very strong possibility slash probability that when Islam's um, uh, preeminence rate rises in the last day, there could be a very strong possibility that Satan decides to utilize Islam as his one of his religious components to his final world empire, his eighth beast empire. It's got to be somebody, right? It could be Christianity, it could be Judaism. But because of the very um, detailed parallel within Islamic eschatology, it's almost like Islam is almost tailor-made uh, the one world religious component for this for Satan. In fact, it's already been put in place. But that would be scary if that were the case. But the even scarier fact, and I'll close with that, is it actually didn't work in that order. It's rather that Islam was already established by Satan from the very beginning and has really been being groomed down through the centuries to become this final tool in the hands of Satan. That's really what's going on. It's not so much that Satan is usurping a religion that was established by someone who was bringing truth. We actually know from the very beginning that the encounter that Muhammad had in the cave with this angel wasn't actually an angel sent from God. When we look at the fruit of the um, words that were uh, recorded, and when we look at the fruit of the religion that was born out of that experience and encounter in the cave, we have to, as Christians, come to the uh, very sad conclusion and very um, kind of um, alarming conclusion that um, Muhammad had an encounter with the demon, not with an angel. And so thus, um, Satan's really been in control all along 
uh, for that particular aspect. It's it's a sad truth, and it just means that we as Christians have an open, um, what we might call mission field to uh, Muslims and those who practice that particular religion. So we'll close with that tonight, and we'll pick this up next week. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torch congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity and as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others let's turn to a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism my name is Ben lyman hanavi let's pick up the study where we left off we're talking about this bible verse found in the book of psalm chapter 110 verse 1 let me just pop the verse onto the screen first and then i'll talk about where we left off the verse says in the uh, NASB version of the Bible, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The clause that we're concerned about because of the two Lords that you see on your screen, the Lord says to my Lord. When we look at this verse in Hebrew, um, we don't have to read all of it, but I think I will. Le David mismor neum Yahweh ladoni. And the clause in question is this one. Neum Yahweh Ladoni. The Lord Yahweh says to the Lord of me or my Lord. And in comparison, we have this same passage showing up in the Septuagint rendering from the Greek. I'll borrow the Alexandrinus version from the left side of the screen. 
I won't read the whole psalm. Todalvid, Salmas, Apen Hakurias, Tokurio Mu. Maybe I could try an attempt. I haven't really read it that much, so I'm not familiar. Kathu ek dezion mu heos an thotus ek thrus su hupa padian ton padon su. And the I guess I did pretty good there for not practicing in advance. And the clause in question is here. Apen ha kurios to kurio mu says the Lord or the kurios the the Yahweh. To the Lord of me, Tokurio Mu, the Lord of me, or my Lord is how we use the smooth it out in English. So what we're discussing here is the difference between biblical Unitarian and non-Trinitarian groups understanding of this verse and who the key players are in this verse. So like when we go back over to the uh, English rendering, sorry, when we go back over here, what people who are non-Trinitarian see is that the first capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh, God the Father. But when they see the second Lord, sometimes rendered with a capital L, otherwise other times with simply a lowercase L, they see this as not the divine Jesus Messiah, the one who pre-existed, who was pre-existent and existed alongside the Father as the Son of God, the Word of God, before he became incarnate on planet Earth as the man Jesus. They instead see this as the human Jesus who was born of a of human parents, brought into existence at the moment of his birth, just like we are, or at the moment of conception and then brought into the world through birth, and then has been exalted to the right hand of God as the chosen Messiah. But the key component is that he's human. And so, obviously, rabbinic Judaism rejects a divine Messiah here. They're going to say that, that their Messiah is either a human figure like Abraham or David or one of the priests or somebody like that. And biblical Unitarian, being a Christian outfit or Christian denomination, is going to say that this is Jesus, but that he's simply the human. By comparison and contrast, we Trinitarian Christians are going to say, no, this is actually the divine Messiah who is truly human, but he's also truly divine. He's truly God. He's 100% human. He's 100% God. He's fully human and he's fully God. So this is where the disagreement takes place. What we have in Biblical Unitarians' writings from their website, let me flash that on the screen first. Oops, why am I there? Biblical Unitarian says that uh, in Psalm 110, they say that this the fact that jesus is the truly and only human messiah is borne out by the use of the hebrew traditions that have been carried along by the masoretic families who preserved the bible for us and so what they purport is that when you read the hebrew like let me bring it up again what you notice is that is this word for lord the lord with the capital l lowercase o-r-d or lowercase l-o-r-d depending on which bible version you're reading then if you notice instead of saying yahweh for capital L-O-R-D, the Hebrew has the word Adoni, A-D-O-N-I. And so the comparison between this word Adoni is drawn when we scroll down to verse 5 and look at another uh, clause, the very first clause here, which reads Adonai al-Yimincha, Adonai, so let's highlight it here. Adonai, here in verse 5, is speaking of the Lord God again, God the Father. How do we know that? Because the vowel pointings, let me give you a different graphic. The vowel pointings on the right side of your screen that you're reading, which read A-D-O-N-A-I in English, transliteration, Adonai with that little letter T under the letter Nun, the N letter in the Hebrew, which is called a Kamatz in Hebrew. This 
Vowel pointing and pronunciation is indicative of God the Father or Yahweh, just another rendering, another way of saying God the Father using one of his different titles, Adonai or Yahweh or something like that. Remember, God has several names or titles that show up in the Bible, Yahweh, Yah, El, um, Adonai, um, Elohim, etc., etc. So, kind of a combination of, of names and titles that work together to identify who this one God of the Bible is. So, on the right side of your screen, that's God, pronounced as Adon plus the word I, so Adonai. It's it's a title reserved exclusively for God. That's the way the Bible um, presents it. By comparison, on the left side of your screen, we have the same consonantal letters, Aleph, Dalit, Nun, Yod, reading from right to left, but the vowel markings change underneath the um, second to the last letter, the Nun, the N letter in uh, transliterated English. The dot underneath the Nun is called a Chirik, and the vowel sound that it makes is a long uh, a, a strong I or a long E. So it sounds like Adon plus a double E, Adoni. And this word with a lowercase a, Adoni, by comparison to the capital A and Adonai on the right side, this uh, word nearly always refers to human superiors. And I say nearly always because this is my graphic here. Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe that it always refers to humans and that it never refers to God. And to make sure that I'm quoting them and not out of context, uh, let's scroll down to where they see that, uh, where I saw I saw this last week. Oh, well, yep, here we go. It's right here. Um, they say in their explanation, the Bible in Psalm 110.1 actually gives the Messiah the title that, are you ready for this? Never describes God. And to make sure you don't miss it, they have it italicized. Never describes God. And then what word are they talking about? The word is Adoni. And in all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a superior who is human or occasionally angelic, created and not God. So they're fairly emphatic in their position here. Adoni does not refer to God, but we challenged that last week. How do we do that? When we go to the Bible and look up the word Adoni, when we're talking about addressing God using Adoni, right, the Hebrew Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yod, with the Chirik under the Nun, so that we end up with the sound Adoni, not Adonai, but Adoni, according to our um, research, yes, it's true from a certain point of view, right? There's that whole Star Wars Ben Kenobi talking to Luke Skywalker, the Return of the Jedi again, about Darth Vader being his father. Truth is truth from a certain point of view, right? Um, didn't make the, didn't mean to make Ben Kenobi sound like Trump there, just kind of faux pas. All right, so, uh, Adoni in the Bible, if we just isolate the word Adoni, we don't find it referring to God based on two factors. One, based on the Masoretic uh, tradition of the way vowels are pronounced with, uh, I'm sorry, the way consonants are pronounced with invisible vowels. I'll get to that in a moment, in case you're lost and don't understand what I'm saying. And based on a second component is that later on in history, sometime after the 4th century, maybe 4th, 5th, 6th century, the vowel pointings that you see in your Bible, those little dots and dashes to your untrained eye, those little guys showed up after Jesus and the 1st century disciples wrote the New Testament. It showed up after the New Testament anyway. But it's still a Masoretic tradition to add those little dots and dashes to what was otherwise already a verbal tradition in Judaism. So, if we're isolating the word Adoni, then yes, it's true from a certain point of view that 
that Adoni never refers to God. But watch this. There are two monkey wrenches that we're going to throw in. One is the monkey wrench that we looked at last week. If we take the word Adoni and, and factor, in the fa factor in the truth, the reality, that Adoni as a compound name along with one of God's other names, which is Yah, a shortened name for Yahweh, Right? You ready for this? Adoni plus Yah ends up being Adoniya in the Hebrew, how we would say it, or Adoniyahu. But in the English, it comes down as, or in the transliterated version, it comes down as Adonijah, or some people say Adoniyah. Now, why is this important? Because when we look at the 26 occurrences like you see on your screen, you can tell I'm a little excited about this, right? I'm a little heated. You can, if you look at the 26 places that this shows up in the NSB version of the Bible out of the Old Testament, most of them either in 2 Samuel or the book of 1 Kings, like we see, it's a description of an individual who's got the name Adonijah. Who is he? He's the son of Hagith and the fifth blah, blah, blah. So we get this guy, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. All right, he's the guy showing up in the Bible. I'm kind of scrolling down to show you that it's basically the same guy in all of these references. Man by the name of Adonijah. It might be a different guy in one or two of the references, but the predominant use of Adonijah or Adoniah is this particular man. Now, here's the bug bear or the rub for Biblical Unitarian. I'm not sure if they purposely ignored this part of the research, if it escaped their purview, if they're blinded by their rejection of Trinity and the Incarnation, the divinity of Yeshua. I'm not sure which factor led to their not seeing this, but once you see it now, as those watching this video and listening to this podcast, it should be glaringly obvious. Adoniyah is a composite of two words in the Hebrew. Let me blow it up on the screen for you so you can see it. The first word is Adoni, which is the word for Lord or Master. Or It's a generic term, and the context drives its understanding and application. Could refer to a human, could refer to God, but the context drives it. And then the second word, as you can see in your screen, is Yah. So it's two of God's names or titles or words that are used in association for God. But here's the part that really should make biblical Unitarians squirm in their seat. Even though this name, Adoniyahu or Adonijah, is applied to a human being, the name means my Lord is Yahweh. And the word Lord here from the Hebrew Adoni, right down there, is clearly, unmistakably referring to God. Right? It's not like Adonijah's mom named him, or dad, named him, let, hey, 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 let's call our son Adonijah or Adoniyahu because we realize that the King David or the King, the Lord, the King, the human King is our Yahweh, right? As if the word Lord here is a human master. Is that what they were thinking when they named their kid Adonijah? The Lord is Yahweh? Or remember, we can reverse that. The syntax doesn't matter. Yahweh is my Lord. Yahweh is my Lord, or the, my Lord is Yahweh. Remember, Adonai and Adoni mean literally my Lord, or even hyper-literally, my Lord's, plural. The word Adonai can be a plural of majesty, just like Elohim works as a plural of majesty. 
Adonai itself. Not, not Adon, the root word. That's singular. But Adonai or Adoni is literally my Lord, the genitive form or the possessive form, or Adonai, my Lord's, plural. So do you think Adonai's parents were thinking that some human being, some human master, a non-divine uh, being, person, was their god? And therefore, they named their kid Adonijah because that particular human being was their Lord. No, they realized that Adon in context can apply to God. And so instead of saying, instead of naming their, saying, naming their son Adonai as an A-D-O-N-A-I and then linking that with Yahoo. So it's, it would be somehow spelled A-D-O-N-A-I-Y-A-H-U, Adonai Yahoo. Right, remember Adonai, A D O N A O I I on the right side of your screen it always refers to God. Is that what they named their kid? No, they named him A D O N I, and then Y A H. Now, were there any vowel points in existence when they named their kid? No, but according to you, ready for this? This is going to turn around, and bite them in the in the, in the behind as well. According to the Masoretic tradition who Biblical Unitarian is banking a lot of their theology on, according to both the oral tradition as well as the vowel points that got added after the New Testament, A-D-O-N-I refers to a human being. doesn't refer to divine beings, right? Did I get that wrong? Let's go back and read it again. Bible in Psalm 110 actually gives the Messiah the title that never describes God. The word is Adoni, and in all of its 195 occurrences, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It cannot be that in all of its 195 occurrences that it means a superior who is human, because clearly in uh, this usage of Adoni, which shows up 26 times, it doesn't mean a human. It means the divine Lord, who is Yahweh, a proper name that's referring to God. The same thing that happens in other names in the Bible that are given to humans, but are using God's names or titles, like Daniel, which is Daniel, and Ezekiel, which is Yehezkiel, and Isaiah, which is Yeshayahu, and Jeremiah, which is Yirmiyahu, and other names right, that bring in the name of God or Israel, which is Yisrael. Other names, right, are that, this is almost to suppose that the name of Israel, which can comprise of Isra plus El, right, um, Yisrael, Prince, well, you know, the root word is Sar, which is Prince, and then the El part is the shortened form of Elohim. There's no one who's saying that the word El there is not referring to God. Everybody who studies the Bible, at least should, knows that Israel's name is is a composite of two parts, Israel plus El, forming Israel, which in the Hebrew would be Yisrael, and it is borrowed from root words that are describing prince with God, or prince of God, or something that affect. But the God part is the meat. El refers to God. It doesn't refer to a human master or ruler being. No one's saying that that's the case with Israel. Well, then why would anyone make the same case here with Adonijah? Everyone knows that Adonai must be God, or in this case, it's Adonai who's also God. That's the whole point. That's the point why I'm bringing it up. Adonai suddenly refers to God, but Biblical Unitarian says it doesn't. So I think they've got a hole in their theology there. Am I going to throw them under the bus for this? Mm, <laughs> I'm so tempted. No, seriously, I won't do that. that that's mean. Um, 
a lot of biblical Unitarians simply are just uninformed. They don't know their own theology well enough. They just regurgitate the things that their leaders say or something that um, maybe you know Anthony Buzzard said or or something like that. They don't really know what the Bible says. They're not looking it up for themselves. They're not fact-checking. And so that's why we're going through this exercise of doing this. So let's continue going down this, this road. Uh, from this point out and the rest of the um, study, I might even be able to bring it to a close tonight. Uh, or next week for certain, because I've, I've basically established most of the foundational parts of my argument against their uh, perception um, of, of who Adonai versus Adonai is. Remember, and I'll, I'll draw the conclusions so you can catch them in case you didn't uh, follow along with some of the studies. But here's the two words in comparison that have different Strong's numbers in your in your concordance for good reason. The Masoretic tradition has left us two different pronunciations of this root word Adon when it's rendered in in um, Ad, as Adonai or Adonai. We have on your left side of your screen Strong's number 113, Adon, which is a root word that refers to simply Lord in lowercase l, but it can refer to God, as we're going to see here in a moment. It just depends on the context. So your Bible translation is either going to capitalize the L or render it lowercase, depending on who they know the context is. And sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's a human. So that's fine. But the root word is the same, 113. But when we get to this other word on the right side of your screen, Adon, it looks like Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-Y, but the pronunciation is either Adonai or Adonoi, depending on which type of Jew you're talking to. If it's it's like a, a ultra-religious Jew, it might sound like Adonoi, like uh, maybe an, uh, a, um, maybe a, not a Sephardic Jew, but maybe a, an Ashkenazic Jew might say Adonoi. But Adonai is how most uh, English readers pronounce it. I've never heard anyone say Adonai, honestly, myself. I don't know why they even translate it as A-D-O-N-A-Y. But it's Strong's number 136, and the rendering in your Bible is 100% capital L-O-R-D, meaning this is God. We should not find any Masoretic tradition, unless it's a scribal error, where A-D-O-N-A-Y is somehow referring to somewhat other than God. That's uh, the kind of the takeaway from that screenshot that you're looking at. All right, so let's kind of dig a little deeper into some of these names of God. This is not really an expose on the names of God, but since Biblical Unitarian wants to make it a point to get very technical with these two words and build a lot of their theology on the verse and interpretation of Psalm 110, banking on the tradition that the Masoretes left for us, which here's part of my um, my my problem with their logic, right? I trust the Masoretic tradition to an extent that they util that God utilized them to preserve the Bible for us. At the same time, I also recognize that they are humans, that they are faulty, and that they have their own agendas. And to that regards, part of the problem with biblical Unitarian banking so much of their assurance that this is the right interpretation of Adoni versus Adonai is twofold. One, the Masoretes Number one, they are largely a non-Christian outfit, right? The, the family of traditions that carried the biblical text along for us through history, they weren't primarily messianic in their approach. They weren't really promoting what we would today refer to as a messianic Jewish outlook of the Bible. To be sure, they would be more uh, well-received in rabbinic circles because they're non-messianic. Um, to that degree, when they pinned the Bible, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, and God utilized flawed men to transmit and preserve his words. But God knew all along that they were going to go along, that they were going to come along and make changes and emendations and alterations to the text in places where it was uncomfortable for them, where suddenly Adonai 
um, should be changed to Adoni and vice versa, or where someone gets too close to God, so they start substituting words and, and changing things that maybe the original writer didn't intend. So, given that truth, since the original text was written without vowel points, right, it was unpointed, it was simply consonants, we don't know with 100% certainty that the word used in Psalm 110.1 was, the Lord says to my Adoni. It could have said, the Lord said to my Adonai. Theologically, it fits what David could have seen by the Holy Spirit that the uh, divine Messiah was sitting at the right hand of the divine Father. The divine Son was sitting at the right hand of the divine Father. David could have been shown that in the Spirit. And when he saw that, he would have written, Neum Yahweh Ladonai. Are you hearing the vowel distinction? Neum Yahweh Ladonai. What's David saying? The Lord God said to my Lord, Master Yeshua. But because of the vowel pointing of Adonai in David's mind, it would have been recognized in the divine Messiah. That could have been possible. But because the Masoretes were uncomfortable with that, they could have just said, you know what? Let's suppress that. Let's change it. Let's... Um, Let's not mark it in, in, in as vowel points yet, but let's just go with the understanding that it was Adoni. David really meant Adoni. And then, then they kind of rolled with that oral tradition. And then when it was finally set into stone with the little vowel points in, uh, you know, a couple centuries after the Christians came along, then they, it, it was by that point in time, rabbinic Judaism would never have been convinced otherwise, right? Well, the, the vowel points say Adoni, so we trust it. Well, that's the kind of an issue there. Um, there was some tampering with the text, possibly and probably. And there are places where there definitely was tampering, at least maybe almost 134, 135 places that there are differences. So these are very, um, real issues that we have to look at. At the very least, we have an Old Testament Bible that we can confirm is utilized by Jews today rabbinic, in rabbinic circles, and it's utilized in a way to strip the Messiah of his deity and to strip the Messiah of his Jesus identity. Right? Uh, religious Jews are looking for a Messiah, but they're not looking for a divine Messiah. Religious Jews today, at least, most of them. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. They're just looking for a human being. And they're certainly not looking for Jesus to be that Messiah, that messianic candidate, whether he's human or divine. So they're using the same resource that we Christians are, but the disagreement is over the tradition and interpretation that's plugged back into the very same resource that both of us are using. So it's a difference in interpretation, a difference in tradition, etc., etc. So it's entirely possible and probable that we're using sources that at one point in time, had a messianic slant to them, like Psalm 110, 1, and David meant a divine Messiah, but Judaism has been duped into thinking that it's a human Messiah, and Biblical Unitarian is simply uh, going along with Rabbinic Judaism's position on this, um, the identity of this figure. So let's keep reading. In the uh, graphics you can see on your screen right on this particular tool from BibleHub.com, we have uh, the Tetragram, the name of God, which is um, obviously always referring to God, right? The, but that's Strong's number 3068. It has no real connection to uh, the Strong number 113 or Strong number 136. But as we begin to look at other um, names for God, we find often in the Bible, for instance, in Genesis uh, 15.2, we have the tetragrammaton name of God, Psalm, uh, Strong 136, combined with 
um, the other Strong's numbers that are related to the word Lord. So in this rendering right here, it's from Genesis 15:2, we have the Lord God, we have um, uh, Abraham having a dialogue with God, actually literally the word of Lord, and that's a whole sermon in and of itself. And Abraham asks the Lord God, he says, what will you give me seeing that I remain, uh, that I go childless and the heir of my house is Damascus, is um, Eliezer of Damascus. But notice for our, for our um, a study, germane to our study, is just these let me see if i can highlight it there we go is just these two words adonai lord and oops there we go adonai lord and yahweh god let me shrink it a little bit so you can see the vowel pointing there we go adonai on the left side of your screen a-d-o-n-a-y strong's number 136 and which is rendered lord with the capital l and then yahweh which is the tetragrammaton name of god strong's number 3069 rendered god so what's the point it's that in this rendering here the masoretes fell strongly there's no way even without the vowel points that they ever would have put a-d-o-n-i adoni god adoni god but wait a minute why didn't they do that with Adoniyahu. I mean, if they're certain that the name of this human being, Adonijah, is a reference to very God himself, my Lord is Yahweh, or Yahweh is my Lord, shouldn't the Masoretes have rendered the vowel point markings as A-D-O-N-A-I instead of A-D-O-N-I? Shouldn't it be Adoniyah instead of Adoniyah? Yeah, but when we get over here, like I'm just showing you, they didn't do that. They put Adonai along with YHVH. This could very well have been rendered Adonai. Yeah, depends on what Abraham really said at that point in time. Because remember, Yahweh is a short, is a longer version of Yah. So these are some of the peculiarities of the text and the traditions that have carried, been carried along with the text that we have to contend with when we're having these type of kind of ultra-technical, uh, what we might almost call textual criticism type discussions with people who are not Trinitarians. Let's keep moving in there again. Hebrew, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. This is a rendering from Psalm 8-9 that's been rendered into music by several Christian artists. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I the, the, Right away when I read those words, I'm hearing Sandy Patty, you know, famous CCM Christian singer from years ago, uh, singing her song uh, in my head, Oh Lord, Oh Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, right? I think the song was originally written by Michael W. Smith, but Sandy Patty is the one who popularized it. So what this psalm is saying, Oh Lord, which is Yahweh, our Lord, notice the rendering of our Lord is Strong's number 113 is the root word, Adonainu. Right, Yahweh Adonenu, but it's not Strong's number one thirty-six, like we saw earlier, which is Adonai, right, or Adonai or Adonoi, which is definitely God. Instead, the psalmist says, "O Lord." our Lord, and according to Strong's, and according to the Masoretic tradition, the root word is simply 113, which is the form of the word Adon, instead of saying Adonai Nenu, or Ados, something like that. It's just something just drops down to the root. Now, some of you are saying, well, of course, Ariel, because why would the Masoretes put like 136 in there, or even something else? The point I'm simply trying to say is, the traditions that the Masoretes had to work with has, we have to factor in the, the reality that they weren't always trying to push a uh, the divine 
person, but the context of the verse in question tells us that this being, the one that we're describing, is definitely a divine being, because the very first title is YHVH, Strong's 3068. And then the very next word, which is Strong's 113, or Adonenu, our Lord, is definitely the Lord Yahweh. It's not, by context, the Lord David, or the Lord Abraham, or the Lord the priest, or some other lesser uh, human uh, person who is uh, Lord. Even though the Strong's number 113 could be that person, it depends on the context. So, the point I'm trying to bring up is simply that um, whenever the Masoretes had to render uh, the, the, from the, whatever tradition they were working from, and then we English translators have to um, go along with that, then we always have to ask ourselves, what's the context? And so, the Biblical Unitarian's argument about that, hey, David wasn't talking about a divine Jesus when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, tell me, make your, foot, uh, your enemies a footstool before your feet. Well, how do you know that David was not referring to the divine Lord, O Biblical Unitarian? Prove that to me. Well, they can't prove it. They just say, well, the Masoretes says that it's valid pointed this way in their tradition. The oral was that it's Adonai instead of Adonai. So that's the proof. That's not enough proof from the context. Why? Because David could have been saying this by the Spirit. He was seeing a divine Messiah sitting at the heavens at that moment. Notice the verbs are in the present tense. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. There's some kind of past sounding tense, right? Perfect verb tense in the Hebrew. But the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Was David looking into the future to an unborn Jesus? According to the Biblical Unitarian, who the, whose Jesus is truly human and only human, then David must have been looking into a future at a at a in a prophetic future at a Jesus that's not, not yet born, who was not yet sitting at the right hand, but would be one day. But according to Trinitarians, we're comfortable with saying that David was looking into the heavens by the Spirit in real time. The Lord said to my Lord, in real time, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy uh, footstool for your feet. Yes, the sit at my right hand is future. But the Lord said to my Lord is presently happening as David is recording and seeing it by the Holy Spirit. He's in real time seeing into the heavens, seeing the word of the Lord who is with God and is God, according to John 1. He is with God and is God. He is the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Lord. He's the Adonai who sits at the right hand of Adonai, or Adonai who sits at the right hand of Yahweh. He doesn't have to be Adoni who sits at the right hand of Yahweh, is the point I'm trying to make. And so the Masoretes, um, uh, kind of sensing that um, tension between two Adonais, or two divine characters, which shows up in other places in the Bible, right? It's not only here in Psalm. But the, the Masoretes were uncomfortable with those, those types of renderings. We can't have David describing two divine beings sitting in the heavenlies. That's one too many gods, right? One too many thrones. So let's 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 dial that down a little bit and just ink it in as Adoni, and therefore from here at this point forward, everybody will think it's just some human figure or something like that. So that's the, the what we have to deal with, and this really gets um, even more um, pronounced when we start looking at. Um, 
the Greek renderings. Remember, the Greek was put together of the Septuagint of the Tanakh. I'm going a little bit over, but that's fine. I need to keep um, going into this discussion. The Greek renderings from the Hebrew Yahweh, which was an entirely different Strong's number compared to the Strong's 113 or Strong's 136, where the, where the root words are Adon. The Greek, when they saw the Tetragram, it's the name of God, the Greek writers of the Septuagint, which was like 150 to 250 years before Jesus and the, the apostles in the first century, the Greek writers decided, hey, let's take uh, the Tetragrammaton name, oops, didn't mean to do that, let's, let's take the Tetragrammaton name of God and render it as Kudios, and then let's take the uh, title for God, which is rooted in Adon, but is rendered as Adoni or Adonai, let's render that as Kudio. How's that for a little bit confusing? Because why? Because the both of these Greek words are rooted in the same word. If I were to click on it, and my tool would show you that kudios over here on your left, which is the Hebrew form of YHVH, is identical to kudio over on the right, which is the Hebrew version of A-D-O-N-I, Adoni. Apen ho kudios to kudio mu. Right? What, what's the point? There, the Greek is like, well, it's the same... It's 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 the same kind of div uh, how do I say it? It's the same kind of important um, person in view. A lord, a, a lord sitting at the right hand of Yahweh must be an important figure. So let's. I don't, I'm just imagining perhaps why they used the same one word, which is kudios, the root word for two different Hebrew words. Otherwise, perhaps they could have just come up with a completely different uh, Greek word for the Strong's number 113, Adoni, or Adon or Adonai, Strong's 136. Why did the Greek writers put kudios and kudios again as their same root word? I suspect, this is my own Trinitarian-leaning um, uh, subjective uh, interpretation, I believe that it's because originally David did say Ado, uh, Yahweh said to Adonai, and because of the strong implications of the divinity of this figure that's exalted and sitting at the right hand of God, I mean, who else sits at the right hand of God except some divine, exalted figure? I believe then the um, the uh, whoever translated the Septuagint said, we need to give this this second Lord enough of an exalted status that we're borrowing the same name for God that otherwise is only reserved for God. They're using God's very name, the Lord said to my Lord. And this shows up in the English version as the Lord said to my Lord which is completely ambiguous to someone who doesn't know anything about the Hebrew or the Greek. The Lord said to my Lord, and look at this, the translation is even identical, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, not all caps L-O-R-D, like you read in other Bibles. It simply reads, the Lord said to my Lord. I mean, are there two Lords in this passage? So that's what we're looking at. And I, uh, when we get to other passages like the one uh, that I've got pulled in front of you, and I think I will close with this. This is um, Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you do I put my trust. Um, the word for God here is ale. Let me blow that up a little bit. Nope, that didn't work. The word for God is ale, E-L, which is a shortened form of the word Elohim. But notice what the Greek does. It doesn't use a different word for Elohim, even though the Greek is, uh, the Hebrew is Elohim. Instead, it uses a form of the same word that shows up for Yahweh, Kudie. Does that sound familiar? Kudie should sound very close to Kudias and Kudiomu and, and, and things like that. It's similar to the other uh, Greek words that we just saw. So we have Kudias right here, which is from the Hebrew YHVH. And then we have 
Kudio here, which is the Hebrew of adio in I, according to the Masoretes. And now we have Kudie, which is the Hebrew form of ale. So we got three different Hebrew words that are root words, but the Greek is rendering them using the same root word, which is kudie, which is rooted in the word. Are you ready for it? Sorry, that didn't work out too well. Let's just try and blow that up. Which is rooted in the same word. You ready for it? Kudios. Kudios. So what's the point? And I'll say this in closing. We'll pick this up next week and keep going with some more of these oddities in the biblical text that 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 doesn't allow for this neat, clean um, explanation that, oh, like, like, it's really an oversimplification. <sighs> I sigh. The title that never describes God, the word is Adoni. In all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a superior who is human or occasionally angelic, created, and not God. That's an oversimplification. It simply doesn't work that way, people. Context drives what words mean what and what words get chosen and go back already, and which words we should um, read when we're reading the text. And it's almost as if, and I'll say this in closing, Biblical Unitarian almost wants us to assume, and they really do, I say almost, but I'm just kind of saying that in, in, in uh, uh, what's the word, in, uh, um, not hyperbole, um, I'm saying it kind of in, um, a I'm sorry, in jest, kind of in humor, um, uh, uh, I can, but I can't remember the word for that. Um, the Biblical Unitarian wants us to believe that the Old Testament was written from a monotheistic, hyper-monotheistic, Biblical Unitarian perspective. That there are no divine characters that would be persons of God in the Old Testament at all. That there, that there is no um, triunity of God in the Old Testament, just like Rabbinic Judaism teaches that the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is a hyper-monotheistic or monarchianistic, as it were, uh, set of scriptures, that there is no divine triune God. He's, there's no um, a tripart God at all. God is always one part, one person. Here was the Lord our God. The Lord is one, not God, according to the Biblical Unitarian. Yes, God, but more importantly, here was the Lord our God. The Lord is one person. Biblical Unitarian doesn't want us as Bible believers, Trinitarians to be sure, they don't want us to... Uh, um, uh, believe that the mystery of the Old Testament is that God is God incarnate, the God that Jesus is God incarnate, God veiled in flesh, hidden in the Old Testament but revealed anew. They don't want us to believe that. They reject the incarnation, and so they're always going to approach the text like it's if it's the default position that God is unity, that He's Unitarian, that, he's, that there's a Unitarian God being spoken of. But that's I'm sorry, uh, a blindness on their part, and so they're going to be tripped up over and over again by the New Testament scriptures, which over and over again begin to reveal this triune God who didn't suddenly be suddenly become a triune God in the New Testament he always was a triune God Jesus always was the divine word of God seated at the right hand of God um, who was with God and is God he always was that he simply became a human being human being in the New Testament scriptures and the New Testament writers recorded that and their eyes were opened to the mystery that God had hidden from them in from Bible writers in the Old Testament it's not that it wasn't existent that's a different story 
story. Biblical Unitarian says it didn't exist. God didn't exist as Trinity in the and never has existed. He still doesn't exist as Trinity. He did not exist as Trinity in the Old, and he does not, still does not in the New Testament. But I dis disagree. According to my understanding of the Bible, um, he did exist as Trinity in the Old and New Testament. It was simply hidden from man's view in the Old Testament. It was revealed in the Incarnation in the New. And thus, when I read through the Old Testament now with eyes opened to the mystery of the Incarnation, I can begin to realize that when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, David was entirely referring to a divine Messiah that he was seeing in the present by the Holy Spirit. And how do I know that David was writing by the Holy Spirit, etc., etc.? We'll get to that next week as we begin to turn to the New Testament passages that utilize this particular psalm. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as Trinity. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for sending your Son to the world, who is fully human, but he's fully God. That stretches my mind. It blows my mind. I can't fathom that, but I affirm it. I believe it. Why do I believe it? Why do I affirm it? Because your, your word says it. It teaches it. It demonstrates it. In some places, it implies it. In other places, it just outright says it. You know, Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus was uh, the uh, he the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, he was with God and 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 was God. Um, you know, he is the fullness of the Godhead uh, in in bodily form. Um, you know, the, he is the Lord that created all the earth and the heavens and things like that. Lord, there there are places where. Uh, you have revealed yourself uh, in the person of Messiah, but yet you are God enthroned in heaven. And again, that stretches my uh, understanding. It stretches the language that I use as English. But it's a mystery, but it's revealed. So thank you, Lord, for this revelation. Also, I thank you, Lord, um, for uh, the study that we undertook earlier, the Trinity study, the um, eschatology study, I'm sorry. Uh, wow, the topics are just very also challenging you know mahdi antichrist dajjal muslim jesus things like that those are topics that are really really uh fascinating but yet they're also very scary at times so help us through these topics as well lord we we need your help um continue to go with us uh this week as we continue to be witnesses for you and give us opportunities to share that witness with others around us, sharing our um, uh, gospel, sharing our witness of the gospel, sharing our testimony with those who don't know and those who need to know. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. Amen and Omen.